nervous so I was trying to change up my style you know that we never introduce ourselves so I am Essie and I'm Grace <laughs> I feel like we should do that sometimes. should we change it each time what that I'm you and you're yeah <laughs> see if people catch up it's a good point uh okay so this is a big one this is a really big one this yeah is, can you see it in my face yeah <laughs> I actually haven't even asked you if you enjoyed it. I loved it, but I I loved it. I think I loved it so much more, though, because you loved it, if that makes sense. Classic. Like, I Um, enjoyed it, but I loved watching you love it. Yeah. So to give, so this episode is um, episode 44, Jonah Lear. Lear. I would have said Jonah Lear, but. Okay. Same thing. (laughs) And um, he wrote. A book, and it's called A Book About Love. As he's mentioned it once or twice or 30 times on the... Yeah, it has come up a lot on the podcast. Grace has always teased me about it because it took me about a year to read, a year to read, and then I lost it, and then an animal attacked it. (laughs) It's just been on a journey with me. But um, it had like a really big impact on me, and I decided to just reach out to... Jonah, the author, uh, a few weeks ago and said, you know, I, I remember phrasing the email. I, I told him a little bit about the podcast and then I was like, you should come on. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I loved in the opener of the email, you're like, are, are you the Jonah I'm looking for or something? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't know, know if I you're no the right one. He was actually it. And yeah. And I remember this, the title of the email was also his the, the book, you know, is called A Book About Love and the subject heading of the email was A Podcast About Love. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> I was like, genius. Anyway, he said he'd come on and um, and it was on my birthday. So it was like a really special gift uh, for me. And um, I did it at The Wing, which is this co-working place that I work at now. And there was actually a lot of noise outside <laughs> The room which just like made me sweat a lot birthday and, sweats are good sweats and we also Jordan and I had a little trouble with the technology uh we couldn't get google hangouts to work so I ended up calling him on his cell phone so the quality isn't fantastic um so but uh that I, I think you guys the can, audio quality isn't fantastic sorry, the audio quality isn't fantastic. the conversation is yeah thank you uh so but the other thing I wanted to mention was there was another book that I a fumble mentioning through the episode and I couldn't remember the name of it, but the name of it is called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. We are talking about problem solving and that book is around problem solving, so I wanted to just add that in. And finally, um, you know, every episode that we upload is so special to us I, and I, I, it's hard to say that genuinely because if we say it every time, you're not going to believe us, but it truly is. I think what I'm starting to realize it is for very different reasons. Sometimes we have someone come on and they express their story and it's just so incredible to sit across from them and see them processing it and, and releasing it and then being so proud of it at the end. And so that's one way, something special. Another one is it's a person that is close in our lives that comes on and it's a memory that we'll have forever, many different things. This one was for me a really different special of, uh, having someone on that I'd never met before 
and their art that they had created had had an impact on not only myself but a lot on the podcast which we'll talk about so it just like it was a special one in a way that we've never had before so yeah. I'm uh, yeah I'm really really proud of this and um, I, I really hope people uh, enjoy it and learn from it yeah I think that line that you had actually incorporated in a quote on our Instagram feed that I never even knew was associated with the book until I read the book. Even though I did, I, I did. No, you, you definitely cited it. I <laughs> just didn't sure I did make the, right the connection back to the book of it being that we're all just trying to like by learning about this, we're all just trying to love a little better. And I, I think that's why this one, especially because it kind of ties the bow on mm. that thought and, and our podcast and what we're doing here and every episode, how it all just kind of like ties back. And we are, that's everyone is a, is a lesson right. and each person is a new experience. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So enjoying uh, Jimmy and Nancy, as always, thank you so much for helping us put this podcast together and yeah. um, subscribe, oh, follow our subscribe, show yeah. and uh, review on iTunes. It, I know it sounds like, why is that important? But it is so important as we start to take steps to try and get sponsors and to somehow get this podcast to pay for itself. So it's all really, really important. And also we'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> anyway, let's, get let's just get into it. Okay. <laughs> Enjoy. Enjoy. Loving anyway Come and find me I don't care if you stay Loving anyway The last thing I'll mention on the text that is I've also got a landline if that would be better call quality if you'd rather no, I think I think we're good. I don't mind a little bit of. Uh, is are you comfortable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it just. It's. You're the professional, so. Yeah, I'll I wish to I was. I really wish I was the professional, <laughs> but my editor will. Don't worry, he'll. He, when he listens to this later, he'll be like, "Yeah, why didn't you call the landline?" No, <laughs> um, I think we're fine. I, from my ear, it sounds good. Okay, sounds good. So I really wanted to. Um, kick off you know my I have like seven ways on a piece of paper in front of me of how I want to start this conversation with you Jonah but I'm I'm sticking with one and it's actually how you started your book was the quote as we know love needs reinventing and um by Arthur Rimbard Rimbard uh-huh and um I think what made me sort of like have this big sigh of relief when I just even read that quote was, you know, I have this podcast called Essie's Hour of Love and, uh, you know, sort of I think has become a – when I first started it was like a bit of a joke with my family and stuff. I was like classic, you know, Essie loves her rom-coms and her fairy tales and, and she's, um, you know, now doing a podcast about love. And as, as we've gone on this journey with love, yes, sure, it did – actually start out that I would make up love stories about single guests that would come on the radio and then we've gradually moved it to where I'm loving at the moment where we have people come on and they really talk about their experiences with love um but I have always and so I think that's why when I but I was struggling to try to define what the podcast was because when you what sometimes when you hear that word love you just go to this sort of fantasy Hollywood world and I was struggling to be like no that's not actually what we're we're doing, but I, I, I didn't know how to explain it. So just even like reading that quote, 
was like, yes, I agree. It does kind of need to be reinvented. But I was wondering what it, what it sort of meant to you when you saw it. Um, I mean, I think something similar. I, I think there is this, this Hollywood vision of love, which predates Hollywood by several hundred years. And I think it's the canonical version is the Romeo and Juliet version when they spot each other across a party. And, you know, you read it in 2019 and, and you have kind of to bracket the sexual harassment part because Romeo just assumes Juliet loves him too. It does all sorts of grabby, touchy, improper things. Um, but, but it's that sense of instant electrical um, incandescent infatuation. And what did you uh, call it? It's limerence? Is that sort of the same yeah, thing? Yeah, exactly. So the technical psychological term for it is limerence, which is, you know, it feels like love, it's often confused with love, and yet it's not love. And I think what I, the kind of love I was interested in, and I was interested in this version of love for all sorts of personal reasons, was the kind of love that goes on. Um, and, and I think what makes love so interesting from the perspective of psychology is this notion of habituation. So every other kind of pleasure we experience gets old. Um, it, it's just it's just a basic law of all nervous systems. Uh, it's why the first bite of chocolate cake is better than the second. It's why you know the new gadget is exciting, really exciting for exactly two and a half days, and then there's another thing in your pocket or on your wrist. Um, everything we think is going to make us happy doesn't make us happy because of habituation, because pleasures get old really, really fast. And there's really just one exception to this dismal law of habituation. And that's love. And what I mean by that is I think love is a kind of pleasure, kind of meaning that doesn't get old. When we say we love something, what we're really saying is we found something that gives us pleasure for weeks, for months, for years, for a lifetime. Um, and I think that's what makes love special and interesting and also really fucking difficult. Yeah. Um, but, but it was that kind of, that kind of love that I think is not captured in the Romeo and, Ju the Romeo and Juliet version, because, of course, they fall right away and their love lasts for not very long before it ends very, very badly. And, of course, when you read the play, they're always being warned by wise old sober adults like the Friar that this isn't love, that, that this is just infatuation. And yet somehow that version of limerence, that version of romance, has become some, you know, synonymous with love. And, and what I wanted to do in the book is, is use the scientific literature to get it, I think, this, this more profound, messy, and more meaningful version of love, which is not about the highest of highs, but about what goes on, what resists habituation. Right. Because there's so two things. Right? So the limerence to me, I straight away went to the, you know, the, the Hollywood, uh, the meat cute right in the have you heard yeah, of yeah. that yeah right and um yeah. and you know the ultimate scene in a rom-com is you know when they when they see each other or how they and maybe they don't even like each other at the start but they're still building a spark to it and and that's what makes these movies um like the core part of what makes these movies very successful because everyone's very intrigued by those and and so was I because I'm secretly hoping that that's going to happen so then I know Oh, good. At least there's a sign I know this guy is kind of maybe 
right for me because that's sort of what I grew up on was that, well, you have a meet cute and there'll be a feeling and, and then you should like carry on. But then from your book and studies, it said, yeah, that, that normally doesn't go past five years, those types of relationships that start with that. Yeah. Yeah. So limerence, so people have done studies of limerence, limerent couples, limerence, non-limerent couples. That's where one person has an infatuation and the other person doesn't have an infatuation. Needless to say, those don't last very long. But even limerent, limerent couples like Romeo and Juliet, uh, the data, you know, the longitudinal data on Romeo and Juliet isn't very positive. So they probably wouldn't have lasted very long. Um, And I, you know, and, and there are some theories as to why they may be. One theory is that that kind of, if, if, if obsession is what you're after, if you assume that kind of instant infatuation is love, then you're really going to be disappointed six months in when, you know, it's just not there because the flame, you know, the flame isn't burning quite as bright. Um, and, and I think that's, that's where these cliches, these cultural cliches actually do have an impact on us because they do, they do create our expectations for what a loving relationship should be, should feel like. Um, and so if our expectation is it's going to be Romeo and Juliet, it's going to be the meet cute rom-com, um, then, then we're bound to, you know, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Um, it's also related to the soulmate model of love, right? So the soulmate model, which is there's just one other soul out there, and this goes all the way back to Plato, uh, there's one other missing half out there that's going to complete us. Um, and everyone else is just, you know, just, just, it's just not going to work. Um, right. That's also setting ourselves up for disappointment. And I think the larger issue with rom-coms, Romeo and Juliet, all these cliches, is that you know they're, they're bound in entertainment. Right? They only go on for 95 minutes. But when it works, it goes on for a long, long time, and it's not just composed of meat cute scenes and triumphant kisses in the rain Chocolates, while you stand outside yeah. holding a speaker. You know, love is full of really dismal encounters. It's about hard work. It's about intimacy. It's about vulnerability. It's about getting each other through the tough times. All sorts of things that aren't romantic at all and certainly aren't, you know, don't fit the neat, cute requirements of a Hollywood rom-com. So so I think that's the kind of story I was trying to tell about love. Um, And, you know, on the one hand, it isn't quite as enthralling as the Romeo and Juliet version, and yet when you look at the literature, it's also what sustains us. Um, The capacity for love and relationships is what allows us to keep on living. It's what makes us happy. It's what gives us meaning. Right. Um, I mean, I've been interviewing for five years now, but I would say my whole life I've been asking people, you know, about, and I'll just coin it like their love life, but, you know, the how did you propose or how did you two meet, that gets old really quickly. And um, it, it isn't as fulfilling as actually hearing, I think, about people's in-depth experiences with um, relationships to another and to themselves and to their kids. Like, it, do, it, it, do, it is surface-based once you, once you go under the hood, I, I've found. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that is a sustaining force. And um, one of the ways I get at that in the book is, is through the work of George Rayland, who's been doing a longitudinal study of Harvard undergraduates uh, from the late 1930s. He's been tracking them for their entire lives. So these men are now in their 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the study began is, is like, 
you know, here are America's greatest young men. They're going to lead these triumphant lives, and we're going to look for the markers of success. And when the study began in the 19, in the 1940s, in the late 1930s, 1940s, they assumed the markers would be, you know, stuff like the circumference of their heads, the size of their chests, the hanging length of their scrotums, all these physical markers of vitality. And, of course, none of those predicted anything. Then they went through a Freudian phase. None of those markers predicted anything. And finally, what, what, what Balin found, well, his first real interesting finding was that here are the, you know, the, the most successful young men of America. And yet when you looked at their lives, their lives were marked by the same tragedies and difficulties and traumas as the rest of us. A lot of them became alcoholics. They struggled with depression and mental illness. Um, and, you know, all the usual struggles of life. And, and then the question becomes, okay, so if struggle is everywhere, everyone goes through a tough time because that's what life is, then the question is how does one cope with that? What determines who succumbs to the struggle and what determines who can pick themselves up and keep on going? And that's where Valen stumbled on this really romantic body of data showing that we're actually allowed you to recover and keep on going after the inevitable hard time is your loving relationships, is your capacity to be in love, to hold on to love, and, of course, that correlates with how loving your parents were. It correlates with how loving your spouse is. You know, and as you track these men across their entire lives, love becomes more and more important. So their capacity for love, their ability to embed themselves in loving relationships, that really becomes the defining quality of a good life. Um, you know, and so I, I spent some time with Valent, and, and he, he talks about this far better than I ever will. But about you know, that to him was the, the surprising conclusion of this incredible longitudinal study, which when you track lives over time, you really do discover that love is what matters. And, and as well, we first admit, this sounds like a cliche. It, you know, but it's lovely to have a longitudinal uh, study to prove it so it, so it isn't a cliche. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's what I found so compelling about it is these are the lives of 290 men. Um, and, and, and it's very rare for a scientific study to track people for that long, um, to, to have that kind of link to a longitudinal study. Um, and you know, I think what a study over time like that reveals is the importance of love, not the Romeo and Juliet version, not the meet cute version, but the kind of enduring love version, the kind of love that goes on. Um, that's what allows us not just to be happy, but to not succumb to the really awful things, which are inevitable, which will find us. Right. Um, no matter so, how much so, money you have or what situation you are in, in yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even these mostly wealthy young men going to the finest school in the world, they still struggle like everyone else because mm. that's what life is. And um, so if we could go back, what, what sort of... Uh, made you even want to get into sort of behavioral science and if we sort of go back to the early days of you figuring out um you know what you wanted your career to be what was it about this area and i don't mean necessarily love just like i guess studying humans um that that drew you to it um i mean i think mostly the mystery of it um i think just the notion that we are yeah, three and a half pounds of gelatinous meat inside our heads um, and how we emerge from that and how we make sense of that. That has always struck me as a inherently interesting subject. Um, you know, and then, and then the, 
then the add-on, the corollary, which is as we begin to make sense of it, and we're just just very at the very beginning of that, how we can use that knowledge to improve our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are the two two big grandiose ideas that have really, you know, really, I think, animated my work and my curiosity. Um, but mostly just the mystery of it. You know, how does this piece of meat invent new ideas? How does it uh, invent a sense of selfhood? How does it fall in love? Yeah. Um, those are those are really compelling, really compelling questions yeah. for me. Just little questions. <laughs> yeah, no, no, just just, just <laughs> tiny minor questions. But I was um, checking out your Wikipedia page, and um, at which I've actually I've just started working at Wikipedia. This is my second week on their brand team, so I was. Um, it's so funny now to say that I was checking out their Wikipedia page. Uh, but I um, it, I sort of saw, saw that you're, and it could, you know, hopefully this is the correct information, that your father was a civil rights lawyer and your mum worked in sort of education and software? Yes, I, I've, I have not read my Wikipedia page lately, but uh, that is correct. Yeah, so I mean, I would presume that they're also, that's some really interesting human discussion uh, you know about behavior and the way people act would be may would be around the dinner table even when you're growing up yeah um you know i never thought about my interest in human nature uh stemming from their work but certainly we always heard stories about how peculiar people were um stories of people other than ourselves um whether for good or bad, um, you know, racist people, anti-Semitic people. Um, so, so certainly I think that, that made us curious about, you know, the human animal. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think I grew up in a really large, boisterous, chaotic, noisy, wonderful family. And I think even just that, just growing up with lots of cousins and siblings, even that just, I think, makes you curious about human nature because here these people who you share DNA with, these are all so different. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, you know, I think just, just paying attention to human beings makes make one curious about human beings. Um, but I always I thought, I, I mean, I think you and I might be similar in, in this sense because I just find people fascinating and, and don't necessarily, what I'm realizing that might be different from other people is don't necessarily have a big opinion about it. Just find it really, I don't necessarily want to analyze, uh, tell someone that maybe their behavior, I don't agree with their behavior or anything like that. I'm more interested of like, why did you do that? Um, But I do also find that I thought everyone was that curious about other people Mm -hmm. and and how they look at the world and how they act. And um, over time, I've realized that that isn't necessarily as, common with other people than than I originally thought. Have you sort of came across that? I mean, I'm always aspiring. I always want to remind myself to stay more curious about other people. Um, or my, or my, even like your th- your own thoughts about your behavior. I'd, I'd, I'd have to lump that in there. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think staying interested in why people do things and trying to see the world from their perspective is like, I think one of the fundamental aspects of empathy, and I'm always trying to remind myself to do that, uh, whether it's with my two-year-old throwing a tantrum or, you know, someone 
someone cutting in line at the supermarket. Um, there's a theory, there's a theory in social psychology that I really love and is I think actually improved my life, which is called it's called the fundamental attribution error, and it's this notion that when we judge our own behavior, we're always making excuses for ourselves by looking at the context. So if we're you know, if we don't reply to a text message that day, because we're really, really busy, we got all this stuff going on at work, let's do carpool, grocery store, whatever it is. Uh, but if we send a text to a friend and they don't reply, it's because they're really rude and they right. just don't like us. Um, so we always describe our own behavior in terms of context and circumstance, because that's often what human behavior comes down to. But when we judge other people, we attribute it to these innate fundamental characteristics of who they are. So they're fundamental attributes. And that's really unforgiving, right? Because, you know, someone cuts in line because they're a jerk and they don't believe in rules. Or maybe because, you know, their dog's in the car and it's a hot day and they're worried about their dog. Right. Um, so, so I always try to remind myself, and this is where I think being curious about other people helps a lot. I always try to remind myself that, like, to not just be forgiving with myself, but to understand that my two-year-old daughter may also be having a rough day, um, and maybe that's why she's cranky and throwing a tantrum about not having another scoop of ice cream. Right. Um, just, just, just to always remember to consider someone's broader context and circumstance. Um, and I think that, that ability is related to being curious about other people. Um, so, yeah, anyways, that was a long. No, depression. no, I, I, I hear apologize. you. No, 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 please don't. But I, so I would love to, as we, were, I was mentioning about just bringing up even your parents and childhood, because the first thing that I, you know, you, you really dive into that my memory from the book. I tried not to like reread it again because I didn't want to have so many distinct facts to talk to you about. More like what I, what has I read it probably about a year ago. It took me quite a while to read it. I lost my first copy and then I bought another one. Then an animal attacked the second one, and it was just been an experience. Uh, but um, the attachment theory, and I'd love for you to explain because I try and I, I really fluff it up um, but I but then also like while you're explaining like the, while you were researching it I'm because I was completely analyzing what type of attachment I had as a kid and, and how does that sort of affect my life you must have been doing the same thing yeah I mean I think that's part of the appeal of attachment theory is the way it's it's irresistible, you know, in terms of applying it to your own life and everyone you know and all your friends, especially your friends who have like have a lot of have a you know had a lot of screwy, messy relationships. You're like, ah, I finally understand why they're like that. Right. Um, I think I think that's a temptation. It's it's also one that you may want to try to resist just for mm-hmm. the sake of not being an annoying armchair psychiatrist. Um, yeah, I've done it that once and twice and it failed miserably, so I, I, I've stopped. <laughs> but then I just like to bring it up. Like, maybe you should read a book about the attachment theory. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there's a great saying in social science that people are experience rich and theory poor. Oh, that we yeah. go around having lots of experiences and we're always looking for theories to make sense of these experiences. And for me, attachment theory is one of those theories which even when it's implied, you know, even when it's applied messily and improperly, it still helps us make sense of our experiences. Um, and I think that's part of the reason I find it so meaningful and it's been so important in my life. Um, but, you know, I mean, the very fast elevator pitch of attachment theory, the theory invented 
largely by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. And it came across, it came about through an experiment done on little kids, so kids under the age of 18 months, where you bring them into a room with their mother um, to oversimplify a bit, then their mother leaves. And most babies, when their mother leaves, leaves them alone, leaves them alone in a room with strangers, they get upset. And the crucial test is how they react when the mother comes back. So there are three basic categories. There's avoidance. So avoidant babies, when the mother comes back, even though they're really upset, and you can measure their anxiety and upsetness through things like blood pressure, so even though they're really upset, they won't fully embrace their mother. They won't be able to be, they won't let themselves be comforted by their mother. They kind of avoid her attempts at comforting her, so that's avoidant. Then there's anxious, which is even when their mother comes back and they're really upset, they stay really upset, so the mom's trying to comfort them, but they won't let her comfort them. Um, they, they won't let themselves calm down. And then they're secure. So these babies still get upset, but when the mother comes back, they're quickly soothed and they take comfort in her love and affection. So most babies, the majority of babies fall into secure category. The remaining 35 to 40%, and this does vary depending on the culture, are split between the avoidant and the anxious categories. And then what's so interesting, and this is a more recent discovery of the last, I'd say, 20 to 30 years, is that these attachment categories that you can sort babies into at the age of 18 months, and sometimes even younger, like 9 to 12 months, that people display these same tendencies in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s. That these same categories don't just predict how we parent our own kids, they also predict how we relate to our spouses, how we relate to our partners, how we relate to our boyfriends and girlfriends. They predict how well we'll do in school. So, so, so there's a very early measure of our relationship to our parents. And because when these studies were conducted, it was typically the mother, um, that these very early relationships do give us a working model of what love is, what love requires, mm-hmm. and how we behave in loving relationships. Um, so, so, I mean, w- when I kind of stumbled on the attachment literature um, after I knew I wanted to write a book about love, um, yeah, it, it, you know, to use an overused expression, it kind of blew my mind. I was like you. I was all of a sudden sorting everyone I knew into these categories. I was using it to make sense of myself. And to me, that that is a useful test of a powerful scientific theory, which helps us make sense of our experience. What, um, what did you land? Because like, I, I switch sometimes depending on what day, but it, did, did you land on one that you think you, you are? I'm sorry, I... Oh, you didn't hear me? Didn't get that? Oh, I'm yeah, just... Yeah. Did, you, um, did you land on one that you think that, that you are? Did I learn? Like, do you sorry, think... Just, oh, I think I'm... Oh, is it hard to hear me at the moment? Can you hear me now? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, I, I just didn't get the question. Did I learn... Oh, did you did land on myself? one? Like, did you... Yeah, do you know... Do you Have you categorized your one yourself at the moment? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I was about as lucky as any human being can be in terms of my own attachments. I was... I'm sure... I'm very attached to my parents uh, still, even in right middle age. Um, uh, so so I, I've had a secure attachment. Um, I think it does, it helps me understand the way 
that your parents give you this working model of love. So, mm-hmm. they, so, so it helped me understand, like, the way you take, the way your parents parent you doesn't just shape the way you parent. Because, you know, I think, as any parent knows, you have these weird moments of deja vu and, you know, everyone says, oh, my God, I sound like my father or I sound like my mother. Um, so you have those moments of deja vu where you're acting like your parents. But I think for me it was realizing that attachment theory is not just about parenting, but that it shapes all of our loving relationships. Um, that helped me better understand how this working model of love was influencing my marriage, the way I behaved right. in my marriage, for better or worse, um, the way it shaped my relationships with my close friends, um, the way it shaped my insecurities at work. Um, so, so it wasn't just about parenting, and I think many people see attachment theory purely in terms of parenting, and I think what I found so interesting is the way I think the more recent literature on attachment theory has shown it's not at all just about parenting, but really is this working model of love, and, and that's, that's love, you know, in the Catholic sense, which is it's, it's about the things we love at work. It's about the spouses, you know, romantic love. It's about love of ideas, love of God. It is love across categories, not in this more narrow domain of, you know, attachment parenting. Right. I did. You know what I did find the most um, enlightening about one of the descriptions around having a secure? Is it secure? Is that what the the? Yeah. Yeah. One, was that the more you felt like you had a safe base, that the actual safer you felt or empowered you felt to go further away and um, yeah. and I thought I I, I pres- and I would like best explain that of even like I'm Australian and I've lived in America by my uh, I moved here when I was 21 by myself and yet um and was you know I never ever thought that uh, my relationships with my parents or anything would be harmed or, or anything about that but I I realized that that through right, right, reading this book and, and thinking about it was like, I, I wonder if I would have done that if I did find that, if I didn't think that I had such a safety net at home and that it needed a lot more work and I, I need, you know, that I, maybe it would be gone if I left. Um, and I, I think if someone questioned me about it before I read that part, I would have maybe said the opposite, that the safer you are at home, maybe the closer you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of my favorite ideas in attachment theory, known as the dependency paradox, which is that before you can be fully independent, you have to succumb to dependence. You have to accept your dependence on someone else before you can really enjoy the thrills and fears and anxieties of independence. And so you can show this most clearly with little kids, um, that kids who are securely attached to their parents are much more likely to explore novel environments, play with new toys, try new things. So that even something like curiosity is also deeply entangled with the nature of our attachment. I think it's absolutely true as we get older too. I think your story, the story you just told about leaving your home is, you know, that's possible because you're able to take your dependence on your parents and the love of your family for granted. Um, so. For me, the, 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 the dependency paradox is a really, really, it's just a beautiful scientific idea. Um, and I think it also is part of a larger theme of, um, you know, 
the ultimate sources of strength in our life are tangled up with the ability to not just show weakness, but give ourselves over to other people. Um, so that's, that's where like things like vulnerability come in. A huge measure of having a secure attachment to someone else is being able to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. being able to tell them you're worried about this or that, show your weakness, and then they're able to help you out and comfort you. Um, but it's like those, you know, those 18 month old kids being able to express their vulnerability to their mom and then let their mom comfort them. That's, that's really, in the end, the measure of attachment. So this also returns us to the theme of George Valens, which is, you know, life is full of shitty things. Shit will happen because that's just what life is. I, I find it really, de- really depressing, I realize. But, but in the end, love is the consolation for that. Um, and so a crucial test of love is do we let the people who love us, do we let those loving relationships pick us up when we fall down? Yeah. But I, so it's just amazing that you could say that that was just not how society set us up to think that it's somehow we needed to be strong and independent. And I mean, even, and what I love about, you know, even after that quote or later in the book, it sort of says, you can't look at modern love without looking at the cultural, um, the culture that it was brought up in. And, um, it's just interesting how I think right now, especially like even I, I just my experience, even with uh, Brene Brown's um, message around vulner- vulnerability, and and I um, work for. I used to work at an ad agency where we uh, did a lot around female empowerment, and we our sort of line was, um, uh, you know, vulnerability is the new bravery. And um, so it's, I it, I know it's definitely out there, but it's just fascinating that it um, it has to. It's like it's a new learning for us, and yet that that probably should have always been always should have been there yeah i mean i think it's the i think it's the larger problem of associating love with kind of chemical bliss right Mm -hmm. like the dopaminergic surge of romeo and juliet right you get the surge of hormones and dopamine and that's what love is uh it's like the highest of highs um you know i think when you look at love from the perspective of both what lets it last and also what makes it so meaningful, it's not just about the highest of highs, that love is also what, what lets us deal with the lowest of lows. Um, and that's where love as a consolation, I think, becomes more and more important. Um, and, you know, again, I know what, it's a much harder sell. I understand why there aren't movies about this, because they, they would be full of, you know, full of tedious, intimate, everyday moments, and it also be full of tragedy. It's like it's a much harder movie to make. Well, um, I, I feel like I that movie, think, and I'm, I'm, I don't think this is exactly right what I'm trying to say, but have you seen The Way We Were, Barbara Streisand and um, Robert Redford? It's an oldie. I'm not. Okay, it doesn't matter. But anyway, they don't end up together at the <laughs> end, just to blow the whole thing. I'm sure you're not going to race out and watch it tonight. Um they don't end up together. And, and I feel like that's been also Hollywood's way of being like love isn't necessarily perfect because you do feel that they love each other. It just it's not working out where actually what yeah. what you're talking, what, you know, I perceive you're talking about is actually more like, no, no, they stay together. It just isn't glamorous. It just isn't all, um, you know, butterflies. And that is something I think sometimes we don't see is that it actually it continues. It, 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 it ips and flows. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and I think uh, there's a lot of interesting work on 
what allows couples to stay together over time. And one of the crucial factors turns out to be this sense of weeness, mm-hmm. which, you know, the couples, they, when they, successful couples, by which I mean couples that stay together, they often prefer their journeys in the second person plural. So it's we. It's not, you know, my husband did this, this happened to him, uh, then I did this. It was we did this together. Um, and then the other really interesting part, and, and you can learn this by asking couples to tell their story, is that every couple talks about bad stuff happening. That's just, like I said, my, my Debbie Downer theme. Um, bad stuff always happens. But, but successful couples tell a story of resilience. That, oh, I'm so glad that, you brought that up. It's resilience. Yes, go. Go say it. <laughs> yeah, no. I, you know, so I think there's this sense from the movies that you live happily ever after. You fall in love and you live happily ever after. And, uh, and life takes care of itself. Um, but, you know, life, 99% of life takes place after the credits, right? right? Like you fall in love and then life happens. And it's like endlessly stressful. You know, it's just, it's just difficult. Life is just difficult. And, and I think successful couples, and this is the work of John Gottman and colleagues, shows that successful couples, they don't obscure the difficulty. They don't deny it or oppress it. They talk about it openly. But the stories they tell are about overcoming it together. Um, and you know, I think this is the, this, there's a really interesting body of literature on how the narratives we tell about love really do impact the kind of relationships we have. And I do think this is, to get back to your theme of the way culture impacts our relationships, I do think the narratives that are in the culture, from Shakespeare to Hollywood, I think they do shape our own narratives. And I think part of the reason I wanted to write this book, apart from a set of selfish reasons, was to give people a new set of narratives or to help people understand that, that that's not the only story to tell about love. It needs reinventing. And then here are these other stories, which may actually be more helpful at helping your relationship continue. And was this also because you were experienced, you were like, hang on, this is just not the love I'm experiencing. Whatever I've been seeing out in the world is just not right. And you were trying to also understand, I'm asking, were you trying to understand what you were, what you were feeling and what you were experiencing? I mean, I think there was a dissonance. I think it was also more personal for me. I, this book began um, after I lost my job. So I, I made some terrible mistakes at work um, as a writer. Um, most famously, I fabricated several Bob Dylan quotes um, in one of my books. And the book had to be pulled from the shelves. Um, I had lost my dream job. Um, and so it was in the aftermath of that when I lost all these things. Were you just I, on, like, the floor? Were you I rock bottom? I <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, like, that was shit happening. Yeah. Um, it was a really difficult period, um, to state the obvious. Um, I thought I would never write again. Um, and then this strange thing happened where I, I just, I couldn't sleep, and I would just start writing and journaling in the middle of the night, trying to make sense of myself, trying to make sense of what I was going through. Um, and, and then this is just because uh, the way I'm wired and I'm just pretentious like this, I began looking at the scientific literature, trying to understand the thing I was going through, what was holding me together. Um, and, and I think that's where I began thinking a lot about love, but not not the romantic version of love. No. The, like, 
here in the force that's literally the glue holding me together right yeah. now. Yeah. And what um, what, that, what that's could you me from spiral out? Yeah. What 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 yep. was what was some of those things that was what was some of the glue? Um, you know, it, it was my family. It it was my best friends. It was, I mean, first and foremost, my wife. Um, it was I had a two-year-old daughter at that point, uh, who's now a lot older. Um, it was all those things. Um, and 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 you know, I think what it came down to in the end was love. These were people who loved me, who who were just going to pick me up every day and make sure I was okay and yeah. get me through a very difficult time. Um, and they were going to yell at me and be mad at me and, and make me understand kind of the scope of what happened and my sins and make me go through that, but they were also going to make me better. Um, and I think it was, that was a version of love, a, a narrative of love that I didn't see in the movies, um, that, that like, like we've been discussing, isn't yeah. the cliched version of love. It wasn't full It's very beautiful, though. Like, in some way, um, like in my mind, I think of it as being, even though I'm, I'm sure it wasn't great when you're going through it or, or, or anything, but it is, that is a, a really beautiful thing, I think, that someone can love someone and it's sort of that classic saying of like, I love you, but I, I don't like what you're doing right now or, or whatever that, that sort yeah. of statement yeah. is. But it, there is something I feel watching human beings go through that and experiencing it myself. I, the gratitude and also like, oh, thank goodness this is a part of love. I, I'm just so grateful for that element of it. Yeah. No, I think... A, a great lover, and I'm using lover there broadly, can mm. be your best friend, is going to make you better. They're going to they're gonna tell you, they're going to help you get better. They're going to hold your hand while you put in the work to get better. Um, so, you know, and then I think to my surprise, I then began looking in the scientific literature, and, and, and the version of love I was going through was the version of love that was supported by the science, right. by the data. It was attachment theory. Um, it was George Valen's longitudinal work. It was, you know, there are a number of longitudinal studies I discussed in the book that find the same thing. Uh, it was this Minnesota study of growth and development, which tracked poor at-risk kids and found that those who were able to overcome their difficult upbringings, it was often, it was almost always because they had the secure attachment in their life. Maybe it was an uncle, maybe it was their mom, maybe it was their dad, maybe it was their grandmother, but that it was that kind of, it was the quality of attachment that let them, you know, overcome their difficult beginnings. Um, so, so it was, it was this convergence between my own experience um, and the scientific literature. And, you know, that I think really made me determined to write this book. You know, as um, I think when I felt that the most uh, in your writing was when you uh, talked about attunement. And um, I, so when I first came over to um, America, I got asked to be an au pair for a family with four kids. And the youngest kid uh, was six years old at the time. And we spent so much time together. And um, I, I, I don't think I can necessarily say that I felt achievement um, because I'm, I'm not a parent, but I 
started to, when she was lying next to me, I'd be able to tell by her breathing if she was asleep yeah. or not. And I could tell by the way she was walking if she needed to go to the bathroom or not. And, and the ultimate, you know, because, you know, four kids, household, it, like there's so many emotions are flying. And it reminded me of when I was growing up and there were moments where I'm like, why are people parents? <laughs> why do they put themselves <laughs> through this? This is crazy. Yeah. And then one night everyone was out. It was a Friday night and it was just um, the six-year-old and I. And um, we were watching a movie and she fell asleep on my chest and the you know sort of that weight of a child on you that and and what yeah. to me it symbolized it's, the best. it's, yeah, the best. it's unbelievable yeah. and also it's like you i just became her safety blanket somehow cuz you don't fall asleep on top of someone if you don't give give it all to, you know if you don't trust them and and i in that moment i went ah i get it <laughs> I get yeah. how this is all worth it. And um, the way you wrote the book, I had this feeling that if you hadn't necessarily lost your job and all the shit happened, that you might not have experienced that with your kids. And I, I, I don't know if I've put that on that, uh, if, if you would explain it. So I'll let you sort of take over from here. But that was, I, I felt that, um, yeah, this was like, oh, yeah, he's, um, he's, uh, even though this has happened, he is experiencing things that not everyone gets to experience. Yeah. Um, no, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, it kind of, life is never quite that neat. So, so right after I lost my job and was suddenly at home with nothing to do, I think I immediately grasped onto this narrative of, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be the dad of the year. I'm going to be the best parent ever. That's going to be my consolation. Um, and then, of course, my daughter was two at the time. You quickly realize, like, I've been gone so much. I've been traveling so much that she didn't want to spend time with me. She didn't want me to push her at the park. She, you know, I, I barely knew how to change her diapers. Um, so, so, so I quickly discovered that I, I hadn't put in the time to develop attunement. And so this, this consolation prize of I lost my job, now I'll be dad of the year, um, you know, the, the much harder reality quickly set in that, that I had a lot of work to do. I had a lot of learning. Um, and and that just to explain really to the listeners, can you sort of just sum up what attunement is? I realize I didn't explain it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so attunement is, is it's a really a unique quality of intimacy. When you spend lots of time with kids, um, you just you just kind of you just learn how to fall into their groove. So instead of always telling them, "Oh, calm down," you just learn how to calm them down. Um, and you know, at a basic autonomic nervous system level, you know, Tuma has these markers where your blood pressure tends to sink. You're both breathing quietly. You fall asleep together. Um, stuff like that. Um, so so your bodies are literally in tune. That's it's the root of attunement. Um, in order to have a kind of sustained quality of attunement, you really just have to know your kid really, really well. You have to know all their little implicit cues, when they're tired, when they're hungry, when they've got to pee. You know, like, like all the things, if you're present a lot, you take for granted. It's this implicit body of knowledge that you just know. Uh, you, you could never explain it to someone else. They've got to learn it for themselves. And I think when I was first at home with my daughter, I... I didn't know about attunement, obviously, and, and I just assumed that it was my God-given right as her father to be able to take her to the park and push her on the swing. 
Um, and, you know, a, a fierce two-year-old will quickly let you know that it's not <laughs> your right and you've got to work to do it. Um, and I think, you know, it was in my head, it was going to be a really fast process. And the reality was it took years and years. And there are still days where <laughs> it's, it's a struggle. Um, uh, now I've got three and, um, and, and, you know, the, the thing you'll learn as a parent, the thing you learn as a parent is just, um, those moments that often resonate the most, at least in memory are not the days at Disneyland. Those are great too, but they're like the days where, uh, you've got the stomach flu and everyone is puking at the same time and you've somehow got to hold it together. Or when someone has, uh, you know, a nightmare at 2 a.m. and wakes up the other child and you're all telling stories uh, to try to just change the subject so they don't have that same nightmare and you can go back to sleep. I just like, it's, it's you know, if, I guess if there's a theme here, it's that it's, it's the, the, the moments of love that, that linger, that become the most meaningful over time, are those moments of vulnerability where you get to help someone out, where, where someone you love and who loves you back helps you out and lifts you up and holds you together. Um, and as a parent, you know, of course, you have those moments like 10 times a day, and I think that's where attunement becomes most essential. Right, yeah. Um, you know, being able to know a kid well enough where they will – trust you to fall asleep on your chest and that that's like that's as good as it gets oh, it's, it's magical <laughs> i uh, yeah. yeah she's 14 now she's way too big it's not going to happen again but um <laughs> i will i will never ever you know forget yeah. that moment yeah. but it's interesting i um so i like i have like three things that are not it's like i i can't find the the beautiful transition to these three things i want to say because they're they're a bit different but so a few just amazing moments in the book that i loved was one around um spouses complaining to each other and that the more that uh married people actually complained the the more likely that they're actually going to stay together because if it was all held in and then came out at one point, it would it could actually have much more damage than others, which I just found yeah. fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean that that to me, there's a, there's a great quote um, about marriage, which is choosing a partner is choosing a set of problems. Yeah. Um, and and it's and I think what I get that is like, I think when you're when you first meet someone and fall in love, you're like, you know, they've got some imperfections, but we'll solve those. We'll figure that out. <laughs> And then you spend more time together, and you're just like, no, no, that's just who they are. We're never going to solve these problems. We'll keep having the same fight. Like, my, my parents have had the same fight for 40 years. Um, and, and it's just like that. They've chosen the set of problems they're going to live with. Yeah. Um, and I think what that study gets at is the, the, the really dangerous moment for a long-term relationship is when you just give up when when you stop trying to solve the problem even though you know the problem won't be solved because at the heart there's something very sisyphean about it all right like you, you keep trying to climb this mountain knowing you'll never be at that moment where like your spouse fits you perfectly and you have no issues with them you yeah. will always have issues with them that's that's what makes them interesting you'll always have something to work on to work on together um and you know to me that doesn't capitulate something 
both uh, depressing and glorious about marriage right. or any kind of long-term attachment, which is the work never stops. Um, you know, it's not that, like, the flame lasts forever. It's that you keep having to relight the flame, kindle the desire, put in the work. But if we really look at this on, like, most things that we experience and do in life, and I think there's that book, it's got an orange cover, and it's, it says something problem-solving, like how do something problem-solve? I think it was on the bestseller list for a while. I'll figure it out and put it in the intro. <laughs> but um, ultimately, what I took away from that book was, life is problem solving, just choose the problems that you want to solve. Cause it's never, problem yeah. solving is never going away. Just what should we have for dinner? How do I get my hair straight? Like every, everything we're doing is basically problem solving. And, um, and um, yeah, I guess it, it does, it, get, it goes again to sort of this romance side of love. It's like, well, no, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, and it's just supposed to be wonderful. But tell me what in life follows that structure, because I, I don't think anything that is um, that gives you a lot of joy and uh, would probably take a lot of hard work, persistence, and there's never really like, you know, an end point. So yeah. it's, it's funny how we just have lumped, sometimes we have lumped love in this other category that doesn't follow any of the other rules of life. <laughs> yeah. No, no. And that's also, I think, the the lesson of parenting, too, is you love them because of the work. Right. Um, like, like babies are lumps of need. They're, they're not inherently interesting. You're not having deep philosophical conversations <laughs> with your one-month-old. Your attachment to that baby is entirely dependent on the fact that it needs you to stay alive and you're giving it a bottle and you're waking up with it five times a night and you're changing all its diapers. Like that is why you have that baby. Your attachment is based upon the work. And this is unique and, to and, humans, and, and, right? And that's, that's, and that's true of babies. And it's also, I think, true of marriage. That like right. the work, which, which we all complain about, um, but the work is also what keeps the love going. Because uh, I'm from memory, there's also that section where our human babies are, are very premature compared to other animals and that most animals when they're they're born are quite much more self-sufficient than yeah babies are which yeah is well i mean it was it was just a basic engineering problem of we've got these big brains but we walk upright so <laughs> human women are relatively narrow hips and so the only way to solve that problem was to just give birth to babies before they're ready to be outside the womb, uh, the whole fourth trimester thing. Um, and I think the consequence of that, of course, is that our babies require an insane amount of care for an insanely long period. Um, and, you know, as, as, as any, it's what, it's what parents talk about. They just, they complain about it. And that's why I like books on getting your kid to sleep will always outsell every other parenting yeah. book combined <laughs> simply because like your babies aren't ready to be awake yet. They don't have sleep patterns and it's really frustrating. Um, it's funny. It's like the most yeah, natural and unnatural thing you can go through. It sounds like. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. <laughs> and the other, what I, and this is definitely the strategist in me that has to try and, uh, you know, constantly looking at culture to see how it's affecting us and trying to, find human insights, but I loved this section around, I'm going to totally stuff this up, so please correct me, but um, during the Civil War, a woman, Mary Elizabeth Phelps, wrote a novel, uh -huh. the, the Gates Ajar, and around, and so this is how I, this is how I tell the story, so, but 
basically in the Civil War, it was very surprising how many people died. They weren't expecting so many people to die. And a lot of Americans were dealing with um, that loved ones um, had passed away and death. And at the time, um, you know where I'm going. Do you want to take over? Because you're probably going to explain this better. But just this, that the shifting of culture they did around heaven and to help people heal with death was just amazing. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you, you said it great, but, but there was this old version of heaven, which was the more puritanical version, uh, which is where you just sit on a cloud, and you're kind of on a cloud by yourself, and you sit with the angels who are strangers. Um, and, and that was the puritanical version of heaven. But then in the wake of the collective grief of the Civil War, which was, I think, a, you know, a mass slaughter like, like we'd never seen, um, people had the need for a different kind of heaven. They needed to deal with this loss in some other way. And so this this new version of heaven came along in which we spend heaven, we spend eternity with our loved ones. Mm-hmm. And so it was this promise of reunification with all these people, especially these young men who were lost. Um, and and that, that remains, for the most part, the, the modern version of heaven. Version it is where we yeah. go to spend eternity with our loved ones. Like an example um, of like when we think about, like if someone lost a, a leg when they passed away um, in the war, that probably in heaven they would have their leg back and they would be walking yeah. around, you know, like I, just even that concept. I was like, oh, wow, that was create, you know, someone sort of dreamt that up and it was like a gift yeah. to culture to be like, it's okay, he's okay, you know, he, he's, he's good up there, which I just, I've yeah. never thought about that before. And, and the impact that storytelling, which you touch on many times, is, and how that can help in, in so many different ways. Yeah, and, you know, so this became one of the best-selling books of the second half of the 19th century and I think remains a, a huge influence on modern conceptions of heaven and it really is rooted in this, collective grief uh, and the need to believe in an eternity in which we're reunited with our loved ones. Um, and that's, that's, that's part of a larger chapter on kind of love of God. And when people say they love God, what that means and the comforts and consolations of religion, because um, that's also part of attachment theory. So you can look at how people feel attached to God, which mm. You know, you either believe in or you don't. But if you believe in God, the way people describe that relationship is is, is really one about love, where they feel God's love, and, and that becomes a, a deep source of strength and comfort uh, in difficult times. So, so I mean, that, that to me, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of belief, I, I think it's a beautiful idea that, that here is this being, which may or may not exist, but regardless of whether or not he exists, he, he's, he or she is still a tremendous source of strength, right. and, and, and people can still feel loved. Um, and so that's just kind of one I, you know, that I wanted to explore in that chapter. Were you um, going, because I, I feel like a lot of people with their own views on religion may have found that chapter hard to write, depending on where they sat on the spectrum of, of religion and God. Did you walk in with some preconceived notions or were you sort of be able, were you able to look at it quite um, objectively? I mean, I don't think it's possible to be objective about it. I, I, I tried to adopt the agnosticism of William James, um, who, who I think you know, his attitudes on religion remain something I will always aspire to where um, deeply curious. You take people's experiences 
incredibly seriously and literally, and, and you just try to understand it, whether or not you believe. And there have been moments in my life where I've fallen at different places on the spectrum of belief. Um, but I think you just try to understand their experiences and you know that these experiences are real to them. Um, and that these experiences, whether or not God exists, they still change people's lives. Right. Um, and so at the very least, you try to understand how their lives have been changed. So I'm um, two final things and then I will, will, I'll let you go. But, um, what out of the whole book has, um, had the biggest impact on you? of either going through the research, writing it, or you're amazed that that's the thing actually that you think the most about, even though you haven't, you know, put pen to paper for this book for a few years now. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's the stuff we've been talking about. It's about love being what gets us through the hardest times. Mm. Um, and I think a precondition to that is the ability to be vulnerable. Yeah. So in order for the people you love to help you, you have to tell them. And this is something... I, I continue to work on every single day. Um, and it's, it's really hard. I think, you know, it's, it's especially hard for men, uh, for whatever reason, that's a whole separate conversation, but the ability to be vulnerable, to tell people when you're worried, why you're worried, even if you can't be articulate about it, even if it's shameful, even if it's embarrassing, the ability to share with those you love because you know they'll still love you in the morning. Yeah. Because you know no matter what you tell them, it'll be okay and they'll find a way to help you. Yeah. Even if even if all they can do is just give you a hug. Um, it sounds very saccharine, but that's something I think about all the time. Um, literally all the time. It's something I, I really work on with my kids, uh, with my son. Um, just, just t- you know, being able to be vulnerable because... That's, that's when love is most powerful, when you're able to open up and let someone who loves you help you. Mm. So I am, um, on closing, which I normally don't say, but I have a little, I, a little rant I want to, rant isn't the right word because it's positive, but I just want to say a, a really big thank you um, for you writing this book. I know that you had to go through a pretty awful time to get to write to this book, but I am very, very grateful uh, for it. I, and I think... There's two reasons. One, I was always, so I've never technically, technically, I haven't really been in love before. I've never been in like a long-term relationship or anything. And I always struggled. I was like, oh, am I doing this podcast? Because ultimately I think it's going to, it's what I'm going to learn and, and maybe I'll, you know, fall in love sometime or, or whatever. Is it some me searching for, for something? And, and um, but what it constantly made me feel like was like, well, I don't have my own love story. And what I loved about reading your book and I think also probably what I was experiencing in life just generally was, hang on a second, our, if you really look at it this way, that we're in constant relationships all the time from the moment we are, I think, even in the belly to even when we pass away, when even when we're talking about heaven and people thinking about you once you're gone, that that's actually your love story and that everyone has a love story. And, and so that I don't, I feel like you probably wrote that somewhere in there and I hope I'm not, um, you know, plagiarizing you, but that was a huge lightning bolt for me and actually made is making it much easier for me to explain why I do the podcast and why people can come on and maybe talk about their passion for, um, ice hockey and their relationships that they've had to form because they've had to give up on going to parties because they had to go to training in the morning, whatever. It, it, it all sort of 
um, you know, it all matters and it, it's all important and it truly is all about your love story. So I want to say one big thank you for that because that was a huge breakthrough for me. And the, the final one was this um, quote from your book that you say, the simple hope is that if we learn a little about love, the, um, that we might um, learn how to love a little better. And that, that just was a beautiful thought that had never been, um, I'd never seen it quite so simply put before. And, um, and I think, again, that's why we do the podcast, Grace and I, and, and talk to as many people with many different experiences as possible because we hope that by hearing theirs we can ultimately become better you know lovers in the sense that we've been talking about lovers so I, I really just wanted to say thank you and I thoroughly enjoyed your book oh well thank you so much you said that so beautifully um <laughs> thank you so much it was uh, uh I love talking to you wonderful all right Jonah um I please let me know if there's anything you want cut out or anything if you wake up in the morning and say get rid of that let me know and no, otherwise no, so fun. oh Thank great you. and I'll, i might follow up and get a photo from you and i'll let you know when it's going live and all that kind of stuff okay great thank you so much this was really fun i really Thanks. appreciate I'm it i'm so glad thank you and have a great day you too okay bye our program is produced and edited by Essie Zarr and myself, Grace Taylor, in Brooklyn, New York, with sound editing and original music by Jimmy Linville. Each episode features designs and illustrations by Nancy Pappas. As always, a special thanks to our guests for coming on and sharing their story. Check out the show on Instagram or on our website at essiezarroflove.com. 